0: Welcome, everyone. I am Alicia Swamy, and I have my co-host, Eric Johnson, here, and we are Exposing Mold. Today, we have Dr. Kurt Wohler. He is an integrative and functional medicine physician, author, lecturer, and clinical practitioner offering specialized diagnostic testing and health interventions for individuals with complex medical conditions such as autism, autoimmune conditions, GI, and neurological disorders. Hello everyone, I'd love to introduce you to Home Cleanse, formerly known as All-American Restoration. They are the first and only remediation company in the country specializing in remediating mold for people with underlying health conditions or mold sensitivities. They've quickly become the most recommended remediation company from doctors and mold inspectors nationwide. Visit them at homecleanse.com. Hello, everyone. Alicia here. One of the most common questions I receive from our audience members is this. Who can I trust to perform a thorough mold inspection of my home? The Mold Guy performs mold inspections specifically for individuals who require a much higher standard of care owing to your complex health concerns like SIRS, Lyme, CFS, autoimmune issues, and more. Their testing and inspection process supersedes all current industry standards on purpose, making them thought leaders and disruptors in an industry unwilling to change old and outdated paradigms. Book your complimentary phone consults here at themoldguyinc.com slash connect. That's themoldguyinc.com slash c-o-n-n-e-c-t. Thank you so much for joining us today. We appreciate it. And as I said before, we are highly interested in a webinar that you conducted with Great Plains Laboratory and you discussed T2 tricothecine mycotoxins. And that's something that we wanted to focus in on today because you really got into the chemistry of it. And we enjoyed that because it's not often talked about. And so Maybe just to give insight to our audience members, maybe you can just give us a little rundown of that webinar and just make it a little bit more digestible for them.
1: Yeah. So that webinar was, I've done a number of webinars for Great Plains, actually for many years. And I also do a lot of teaching through my own online academy called Integrated Medicine Academy, where we talk about mold, microtoxins, certainly talk about many other things. But my focus on this particular webinar was I had actually previous to this done a webinar on just the general topic of mycotoxins and the negative influence they can have on mitochondrial function because we know now in medicine, it's been known for a long time in integrated functional medicine, but it's becoming more well-known in even conventional medicine that mitochondria and problems in mitochondria play a role in a huge amount of diseases. And so I thought I would focus a bit on these trichothecenes. That's how I pronounce it. Some of these things are difficult to pronounce, but it was interesting in the angle that I tried to take, and just looking at some of the chemical aspects of it and why they're toxic. One of the things that I'm interested in personally is trying to understand more about the chemistry of these things and why they're uniquely toxic. You know, so every chemical has its unique characteristics chemically, obviously, and from a toxicity standpoint, if it is a toxin, but I want to know a little bit more about the why, why things happen. And so that was the main focus here is just, just to look at some of the, the, the chemical structure of trichothecenes, what makes it uniquely toxic, why it reacts the certain way at the cellular level, how, what kind of damage it can cause, And so that was the initiating part, and then we get part of it, and then we got into, you know, certain examples of that, you know, and the fact that it can interfere with immune function, and it can interfere with liver function and cause dysregulation at the cellular level that can affect things on a DNA level. And what does that mean clinically? Because ultimately, people who are being exposed to these mycotoxins... Can develop all different types of health disorders from from cancers to autoimmune problems to immune system issues to gut problems. And so that was the main thrust. And really, where we ended with this particular talk is going back to the mitochondria. What happens at the mitochondrial level with this group of mycotoxins and, and what do they do? Why does the mitochondria become damaged in the presence of these things? And so that webinar was really meant to ask some questions and try to answer some of those questions.
0: Awesome. Thank you for that. You know, there was something that I was interested in and, you know, you did cover a lot of the chemistry aspect of it. And I'm assuming you've, you've been practicing medicine for a while. I'm assuming you are noticing different things with mold injured patients. Is there some, is there an aspect that you're noticing with molds and and just mycotoxicity and mold-related illnesses that just don't seem to match the, the literature that currently is out there?
1: Yeah, I mean, there is to some degree. Well, let me put it to you this way. It certainly isn't well known in the conventional medical world. It's better known in the integrative medicine world, but I think more from a surface level standpoint. And that's not to say that people can't understand it. But when you start talking about the chemistry of it, now you're talking about the inorganic chemistry, the organic chemistry aspects, and the influence that has on the biochemistry. And that's, it's an extremely difficult topic. In fact, in in undergraduate, you know, college, the, and even graduate college, organic chemistry is one of the most complicated types of sciences you can take. It's extremely difficult to understand. And the reality is In a clinical practice, you don't really need to know it. You know, it's not really going to necessarily change perhaps what you do fundamentally in trying to help a patient, et cetera. But from an educational standpoint, and I I really believe, and this is something that I've taken on myself, for for us as integrative and functional medicine practitioners, I really feel we need to have a strong understanding of the, the fundamental basic sciences and learn more about how it applies or potentially applies clinically in practice. Because the more we can understand about the mechanisms, the more we can try and understand other relationships that may show up with other chemicals, looking at nutrients, looking at supplements, looking at medications, and understanding more about the modes of action and activity. And so it, it, that's, I think, the where a lot of people tend to fall short. Again, not that people can, aren't able to understand the information. They either, either have never been exposed to it or they're so busy in practice, it's just difficult to, you know, to, to understand or spend the time learning these types of things. So most of my experience in the conventional medical world is they know very little with regards to mycotoxins. They'll know a lot about mold and allergy or mold infections. But when it comes to mycotoxins, I mean, there are doctors I've come in contact who don't even really know what they are. In the integrative world, that's different. People are much more open to it, much more aware to it. And that's a good thing. Now it gets down to trying to understand the unique cellular and molecular reactions that these mycotoxins are having. And so a lot of the information, as you know, comes out of the the veterinary world and the world of agricultural medicine, where they've studied these things quite a bit. And so this is now becoming more well-known to us. And it's important, and I think we'll just continue to learn more as time goes on, but does it match the literature? No, it, it honestly it doesn't in many regards because things are just so misunderstood. I still come in contact with practitioners that aren't don't quite grasp what is the difference between a mycotoxin of the mold and the mold itself. And trying to just get people to understand that concept is is critically important. And even the general public, I think, sometimes gets confused about, well, what is the difference? And the difference is, is the mold is the organism that produces the mycotoxin. It is a toxin of the mold, but they're different, right? They're, 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 they fall in different categories. And so you can get rid of a mold infection, but still be toxic from the mycotoxin that the previous mold produced. And I'm sure you've talked about this on your podcast and share this with others. That is the critical aspect of people who are suffering chronic illness secondary to mycotoxins. They may no longer be in the presence of active mold, but they're still dealing with the toxic effects of the mycotoxin.
2: Yeah. Why is it so hard to get over trichothecine poisoning? Well, it's so
1: pervasive and the damage that it can cause is within the body is so profound. I mean, one of the things I learned in putting this lecture together was all of the different systems that it seems to be able to hit. Now, Maybe it has to do with some of the the chemical nature. You know, I I mentioned in this particular lecture, this epoxide group, this four, I think it's the carbon 13 to 14 epoxy ring structure. It's a triangular ring structure bonded to an oxygen. And epoxides by nature, chemically, from my understanding, are very unstable. There's a lot of chemical strain or molecular strain within that configuration, And so it makes it so extremely reactive. And one of the things that's happening because of that chemical reactivity is it reacts with, you know, oxygen or reacts with sulfur, for example. So if it's going to react with a thiol group, well, that's a big problem because we have sulfur and sulfur-containing amino acids all throughout our body, particularly in the brain and nervous system. So we can start to see things from a cellular level of just the interaction with with sulfur and how that could compromise the brain, the skin, the digestive system, the liver, the kidneys. So you can almost start to see how it could just be so pervasive throughout our body, almost into any organ system that you that you can think of.
2: So do these things get into the fats and stay there and cause damage for a long period of time? Well, from my understanding, what
1: I've seen with patients is that these mycotoxins can stay in people's bodies for months, if not years. And so they can get into the fat or they get into the cells. And, you know, some of them probably stay there. I'm sure there are attempts from a cellular standpoint to try to conjugate them and break them apart. But one of the things that we see from a testing standpoint is that sometimes people are continuing to spill these things. Even though they're no longer actively being exposed, now, one of the things with regards to mycotoxins in the context of this discussion, when you do mycotoxin testing, you don't often see these trichothecines because you know the one of the main molds that's producing it is the stachybotrys. or I mean there's a lot of different types of trichothecines, but the stachybotrys molds you know are not as common as, let's say, aspergillus or penicillium mold. So think just by numbers, people who have mold exposure in their homes, the vast majority of them tend to have the aspergillus penicillium type of problems. And so to actually have Stachybotrys growing, you know, takes a tremendous amount of water or, or constant source of humidity for that thing to really proliferate. I just actually had a consult in the past month or so with an individual that had massive Stachybotrys exposure, her whole family. And so they're significantly compromised. But, you know, in my consulting with people, you know, around the around the country, around the world, the, the, the heavy load or the heavy exposure to Stachybotrys isn't as common as it is to things like the Aspergillus and Penicillium. So the main Mycotoxin that we often see is ochratoxin. That would probably be the most common mycotoxin that any of us are exposed to just through aspergillus exposure. So it, they can stay in the body. I mean, I've seen patients who were in a moldy home, and three years later they still have elevated mycotoxins because nothing was really done to try to get rid of them. And so the body somehow is, you know, either sequestering them or they're they're binding up into certain tissues and just kind of staying there.
2: So what drew your attention to this particular toxin? Well, you know, I
1: have done a lot of lecturing on chemical exposure. I do something called the organic acids test quite a bit in my practice. And I actually teach an entire seminar on the organic acid test from Great Plains Lab. And on that test, there are markers that are indicative of certain organic acid imbalances that occur because of gut colonization of mold particularly aspergillus and fusterium mold. And so those are two fairly common things for people to get exposed to. And in, in those cases can actually colonize the gut. There isn't any marker on the organic acid test that is picking up on, let's say, stocky botrys. However, when you do a mycotox profile on many people, many people who are either representing or showing elevated organic acids linked to mold exposure or not, You'll, you'll see many times mycotoxins show up in a very profound way. And I actually had a case, probably going back a couple of years now, I actually do some consulting with for healthcare practitioners. And there was a case that was presented to me of an individual that had, for the most part, a normal-looking organic acid test linked to fungal, candida, and bacterial markers. And the mistake that can be made is that you have you have practitioners who are looking at that test to dictate whether or not to do a follow-up mycotox profile. And I always tell people, I said, you can't rely on the organic acid test to rule out the existence of mycotoxins. They're an entirely different entity. And so in this particular individual, they had done a mycotox profile as well. And this individual had ochratoxin, gliotoxin, mycophenolic, as well as the Riordan E, as well as the Veruparine A coming from stocky Stachybotrys exposure. And the, the learning lesson in that was you had an individual that had severe mycotoxin exposure getting exposed to Stachybotrys. There was no other test represent, representing any sort of evidence of stocky Stachybotrys exposure. And we know how toxic that is. I mean, you can talk to many, you know, mold home inspectors, and they'll tell you how toxic and problematic Sakibochus is. if they had not done that test and just let it alone, no one ever would have known. And this individual patient was having serious decompensating health issues. And so that really struck me as a, wow, There, you can have these mycotoxins hidden in the body and really not have another test that can even suggest that it exists. The only way you know is to actually test for it. And that from that point forward, I really emphasized to practitioners, please do mycotoxin testing. Don't forget it. Don't skip over it and just make an assumption that it's not a problem. Because every once in a while, you'll find somebody with this, you know, these trichothecenes. In fact, I had another situation of a, family that was being mold exposed from a water leak behind their dishwasher. And it turned out it was stachybotrys.
2: Wow. Well, I remember you, eaters would often talk about molds being so many millions of spore forming units and so much measurements of this or that or the other thing. And then they talk about stachybotrys and it's like one mold spore, run for your life. So, what is it about this one mold that makes it stand out so that it's not measurable and it seems to be so deadly that they attach a special importance to it?
1: Yeah, I think it has to do with the the mycotoxins that it produces. It's these these the unique quality of these trichothecines. And I think you know, just from a chemical standpoint, when you actually go, there's been some good articles you know written on this, and I'm not a toxicologist, so I don't have that kind of training. And you know some of the chemistry. I'm having to reach back and go back to some of those earlier textbooks and and teachings into that. But m- many of the articles I've read on mycotoxin toxicity, there's a big emphasis always placed on the macrocyclic nature of the trichothecenes. This epoxy ring structure that has very unique characteristics. For example. That that epoxy ring structure is found on certain chemicals. and in in fact, I can't remember right now there's a a particular pesticide, I think it is that we can get exposed to that as our liver attempts to detoxify it, it increases or enhances the chemical's toxicity. so I, I made a connection in the lecture that showed that, the, the processing of this chemical through normal liver detoxification enhances the toxicity of the darn thing. And what it's doing is it's disrupting the guanosine, cytosine, nucleotide linkage, that base pair linkage within the DNA. And so if you just look at the chemistry of that reaction and then transfer it over to the trichothecenes again, with this epoxy ring, well, we can see how it too could end up causing damage at the DNA level. And think about it, if we're disrupting base pair reactivity or connections at the nuclear level, right, that can then get transferred into messenger RNA, which can then get sequenced into just sort of abnormal protein production. And then we can really start to branch from there and realize we could be developing all different kinds of deranged proteins that they themselves lead to cellular toxicity in the cell. As far as you know, the the unique aspect of stocky botrys, you know, maybe, and I'm not quite sure, you know, maybe it has more to do with the the toxicity of the mycotoxin that it's producing, that they're so extremely toxic compared to others, you know, of why you don't need a lot of stocky botris around in order for it to really cause problems. I had a situation, by the way, sort of in the same theme of that question, was. I've seen mold reports come back from patients where it says, hey, look, you know, your, your aspergillus markers are, you know, they're pretty normal compared to the outside and the inside of your house and what we know is quote unquote normal. And I question that sometimes in patients who are acutely ill because it might be normal from just an exposure standpoint, but an individual could have an abnormal reaction to even normal, in quote, exposure. And I had a case actually of a family in outside the US. And they have an autistic child who's extremely sensitive to mold exposure. And they actually found aspergillus, no stocky botrys in this example, but they found aspergillus in the mold. And according to the mold inspecting company's report, it was in quote, within normal range. When you did the mycotoxin profile on this kid, it had some of the highest mycotoxins that I had seen at the time. One of them was gliotoxin, which was the highest that one of the biochemists at the lab had ever seen. And when we looked at his organic acid test, every single marker indicating aspergillus colonization of the digestive system was elevated. So even though the level in the home was you know, normal, his body accumulation of it and his mycotoxins that were linked to the aspergillus exposure were anything but normal. And that was one of those other moments where you realized clinically that, you know, individual sensitivity and susceptibility to these things also has to be taken into account. Because again, as you two know, you know, every single person can react in a different way.
2: Well, when you talk about the structure. The epoxide ring structure, which I guess is an ion dipole. I was wondering if substitution re- reaction or, you know, like a halogenated alkane reaction might add something additional to the structure to make it more toxic.
1: That I don't know. You're, you're, I mean, you know, maybe that your understanding of some of the inorganic chemistry is, is greater than mine when it comes to that. I, I haven't looked into that, you know, in any further details. You know, I think it's, it, that's certainly an interesting, certainly an interesting aspect. My understanding just with regards to that epoxide structure of the epoxy ring is that it gets attacked, you know, from, or it can get attacked essentially from, from different substances, but its ability to interact with thiol groups is, is probably one of the reasons it becomes so problematic in the body is because it just causes sulfur dysregulation or it uses up glutathione. Probably the simplest way to think about, you know, taking out thiols is the zapping of glutathione. And once you get rid of your glutathione, well, now all of a sudden you're in a big problem because mitochondrial activity, just normal mitochondrial activity is generating oxygen radicals, which can inhibit different sequences in the krebs cycle different inhibit different things within the electron transport chain or il- electron complexes and just increase you know toxicity at the mitochondrial uh, level one of the things with regards to trichothecenes is not just unique to it some of the other mycotoxins damage the mitochondria in various ways where there's an expression of cytochrome c which is a chemical that's transferring electrons from complex c to complex 4 excuse me, complex three to complex four. And when you get a release of cytochrome C, it triggers an apoptosis reaction within the cell. So basically a pre-programmed cell death mechanism where the cell commits suicide. So as far as what else it might exchange with from a halide standpoint, I'm not sure. Matt, it sounds like maybe you've looked at that too.
2: (laughs) A little bit, yeah. One of the hallmarks of chronic fatigue syndrome was high apoptosis watched Danny measured that years ago now are you familiar with chronic fatigue syndrome I am
1: I mean I that goes way back in the my my early part of my career is is you know trying to help people with chronic fatigue and I, I remember it's, it's interesting to bring it up because I still remember going to a support group I was practicing in San Diego at the time and this we're probably going back 20 years or more now and they were taught there was it was sort of it was a major push in this group of everybody needs to take NADH as a supplement. And at that time, I'm like, I'd heard of it. I wasn't quite familiar you know, with what NADH was or some of the unique biochemistry of it. But, you know, now knowing now, right. And how, you know, NAD to NADH and Krebs cycle and glycolysis and all of that, it certainly you know, makes sense to some degree. So you're probably dealing with people who are just dealing with long-standing mitochondrial
2: dysregulation. Well, that was definitely measured. And this, uh, this is the 1994 Saratoga Springs Proceedings Manual. This is sort of the Bible for the indoor air quality profession. It was put out by Eckard Johanning and Dr. Chin Yang. And this was the first international symposium in 1994. And there's a whole chapter in this book dedicated to asking the question, if stachybotrys, in particular, is connected with chronic fatigue syndrome. So that was my goal. I thought, well, I should be able to contact researchers and tell them, yes, there actually was stachybotrys documented in the clusters that baffled the CDC into creating the syndrome. So that's kind of what we've been doing at Exposing Mold is contacting researchers and telling them the story so that the people who are confused about chronic fatigue syndrome can start to factor the, the mold into the equation, right? And, and in particular, figure out why stacky was such a butt kicker.
1: So I remember and that was what year was that? 1985. I'm trying to think. I, I went into practice '96, '97. I was practicing in San Diego. I had just come out of my internship. I was in an integrative practice at the time. That's where my first introduction to the autism. World came in. I started going to conferences in San Diego. Didn't understand or didn't really make the connection with mold in some of those kids then. Did understand Candida, which we know is a fungus. And then my first, I remember, I don't remember what year it was, but my first real introduction to a really mold toxic, chronic fatigue individual was actually a a woman who was an attorney came to see me who was. Renting in a condominium in San Diego at that time, and I, I want to say it was around you know 2000, early 2000. Anyway, she was extremely sick. one of the things that I picked up on was she was very reactive to foods, to the environment, to smells, to perfumes, to laundry, detergent, all of it. She was devastated. and it at that time, I actually ran a, a mold test. Now we didn't have mycotoxin testing at the time, at least that I knew of but there was a lab in california that was doing antibody testing not just igg but iga and igm antibodies we ran that test and it you know lit up like a christmas tree i don't remember the specifics now of which molds but there was a lawsuit brought so i got called into a, disp- a deposition you know grilled for about 3 hours on the validity of this test and you know because they were fighting it back then in fact from what i remember in california maybe you might remember too being from Truckee, some of the regulatory agencies at that time were not too happy with labs that were looking at mold. So it's kind of controversial. It's not that way anymore. So it's interesting the timing of that. But, but the, 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 from the standpoint of, of you being in a school, I have now seen over the years that many schools are moldy. In fact, you probably make the argument that most are. In fact, I had a situation with my son going into fourth grade. We show up and I noticed the teacher has, she looked like to be about her mid thirties. She had a tremor and she was, I, I could tell she was cognitively impaired. It wasn't that she wasn't smart. She just, something was clouding her ability to communicate. And I thought, well, this might be a problem. So we, we came back a couple weeks later for a sit-in in the classroom. My son was, again, in fourth grade, and I started to smell mildew. To make a long story short, it turns out the school knew there had been a water main break between the two buildings. The teacher from the third grade classroom was recognizing a smell of mold. And eventually, we got my son out of there. The teacher, who was his teacher at the time, came up and said, that room is making me sick. It's continuing to make me ill. They brought up company out, they found mold, I don't remember what exactly what it was. And then they eventually closed that section of the school down. And I've heard this story. And maybe you know, just being in this world has been repeated in so many places around the country, again, in schools. So it was actually a, a at one point to me from a, a integrative neurologist I work with, probably one of the largest clientels of people that they see in their practice with mold toxicity, which would include chronic fatigue, are teachers.
2: So definitely. In fact, one of the schools that was used as a base study cluster for chronic fatigue syndrome was eventually bulldozed completely out of existence. Wow. Of course, they tell people they just wanted a, a, a new school when it wasn't that old to begin with. Right. But that was the excuse they use. So, over the years, the evidence, the original core evidence that could explain the mystery is disappearing into the past, being bulldozed away, or remediated. The school I went to, I don't mean to badmouth my old school truckie, they did everything they could to fix it up, and it took them years, and they finally did. I go there now, and it feels great. So, you know, it's not like there's an evil plot to make people sick. Sure. This yeah. is just a very difficult thing to deal with.
1: It is. I I actually work with people in other countries and just doing some health education consulting. And I've seen some very difficult situations with a group that I consult with, a doctor group in Pakistan. And I've had a number, these are mostly autistic kids. It's the vast majority of them have mycotoxins. And what I learned is that the homes in that area, their water heaters are on their roof. And so all of the pipes are filling down through their walls. I've, I've done some consulting with some families in India. And I, the, some of the mycotoxins I see on their test are just, I had a, I had a gliotoxin over 200,000. You know, so that, that's unbelievably high. So it's a, this is a problem all over the, all over the world, I'm convinced.
2: Yeah, do you remember Dr. J- Jack Dwayne Thrasher? the name's familiar, is a a very well-known immunotoxicologist who got involved with toxic mold years ago. But I was in a group with him studying autism, autism, the connection between autism and mold. And at the time, he was not actually a mold believer. He was in the group to talk about chemicals. So we dealt with a case of a lady with an autistic son who avoided a certain portion of the house. And Dr. Thrasher was convinced that it was probably formaldehyde. And I suggested toxic mold. And he argued in favor of his chemical. And I argued in favor of my mold. And we had the gal contact Dr. Gary Ordog, who had the house tested, found stachybotrys. And since it was found in that particular corner, that settled the matter and made an instant believer out of Dr. Thrasher. But the curious thing is Dr. Thrasher was the Advisor for the Chemical Injury Information Network. This was in 1999. And he was totally sold on chemicals at the time. No mention of mold. So it's just like the Center for Disease Control, just like the NIH, like all the researchers, even the patient groups and the advocacy organizations and the chemical injury advocacy groups were completely unaware of toxic mold. So my question is how is it possible? everybody was so ignorant of toxic mold prior to the 1990s? Well, I think they're still that
1: way. I mean, I, I, I think what I've seen within a patient population is when you, when you tell somebody they likely have heavy metal toxicity or exposure, they, it's like, oh, that makes sense. When you tell somebody, you know what, you've got likely chemical exposure, organophosphates, you know, whatever. Oh, I can see that. Okay, they don't. People don't seem to have a problem when you mention mold. I I can't tell you this isn't just me. I, I communicate with many other practitioners, but when you mention mold, not everybody, of course, but a lot of people go, "Oh, that can't be," you know. No, no, no. My home is mold-free. No, it was checked out. It's totally fine. It's almost like they argue against it, and I don't know if it's because everything that's wrapped around mold is so encompassing because it really gets to the heart of mold in your home means you have have remediation means you might have to move out means, you know, the cost money. It may mean that it doesn't have good resale value. I don't know. All of those dynamics come in. Whereas like a chemical exposure or something else seems a little bit more reasonable. I mean, I, I mean, why these things happen. I, I don't have an answer for it. I, I, but I've, it's a trend that I've seen. I mean, I, I'm still. I mean, I'm, I'm still. I still find it hard to believe that the vast majority of the medical profession can't even have a basic understanding of adverse vaccine reactions seen in autism.
0: Absolutely, and you know, <laughs> just to just to throw in a tangent here, I'm just curious. Like, are you finding mold toxicity playing a role in many dis- disease states? It seems like I hear this all the time amongst many chronically ill patients that have X, Y, Z diagnoses. And then, you know, they say, oh, and I had a leaky basement or, you know, I also have yeah. mold." it's like how, how big a of a role or how little of a role is mole playing in all of these types of diseases?
1: It's playing a big role. What makes it challenging is it's not always easy to remedy. And that's, Was a challenge. And and the, the other thing that is a challenge is that a lab test tells you the existence of a toxin. It doesn't tell you, well, let's say a mycotox profile, it tells you the toxin exists. It doesn't tell you how toxic your patient is to that toxin. And so I've often made the comment that the presence of a toxin is toxic, but it doesn't automatically mean that you're toxic from the toxin. But the longer that toxin stays around, the greater chance it has to become toxic to you. And so it's a challenge because there's a lot of things that are done where, you know, there's an element of medicine that is the practice of medicine, right? It's not always 100% effective. And so you move forward with interventions based on the best knowledge that you have clinically clinical presentation of the individual, physical exam, lab testing, and what seems to make the most sense. And when you start comparing, and I think maybe this goes back to your earlier question about the unique quality of stocky or is it just the unique chemical characteristics of the trichothecines, when you start comparing the toxicity levels, when you look at the toxicity index, or whatever, you know the terms are used, mycotoxins from a biological standpoint are some of the most toxic substances around. And so just by their existence for people with chronic health, it seems to make, make sense to go after those things as a heavy priority because they may be able to deal with certain chemicals or metals or whatever else, but it's the mycotoxin that just is, is just so damaging and overwhelming of the biochemistry. The other thing that makes this a challenge, and I, I know you've thought, you know, of this yourself, is you have the mycotoxin, then you have the mold, right? you got the other volatile organic, you know, compounds that get produced, but the mold itself is generating immune reactivity. So now you're getting immune activation, both within the innate immune system and then crossing over to the adaptive immune system, and people are locked in a chronic state of inflammation. And then that chronic state of inflammation, whether it's the gut, the liver, the kidneys, the brain, that has its own catastrophic effects. Then you pile on the mycotoxins, which now dysregulate the biochemistry, in many cases, either weaken or create immune dysregulation. And then you're left vulnerable to other types of problems. One of the things we see with the autistic kids, it's not just unique to the autistic kids, it's just they're studied a lot. Is that the existence of some of these mycotoxins causes immune suppression in the gut, which now creates a problem of proliferating candida and bacteria, which then just compound the problem. So I know this, I don't want to make it sound like it's hopeless for patients, right? Because it's not hopeless, but it is complicated. And in, in, in the in the conventional medical world, I can see why, understand why many of them don't get into it because they don't have the time. And, you know, when you're compressed in time at a busy practice of 10 minute visits, you know, you don't have three, four hours to delve into the research and try to figure out all the biochemistry, you know? Yeah. So so
2: what they need to do is keep crazy people like us around so that when they have some questions about it, we can go, Oh, I've got an idea. I think I've run into this before.
1: (laughs) Well, that's right. Well, I mean, I know you two exist and I exist and I'm I'm excited to be, is I exist in the world of practitioners that are taking this on. And the conferences that are put together and the webinars that are put together and the podcasts that are put together are dedicated to this because this this topic alone requires a tremendous amount of study, a tremendous amount of understanding and a, a tremendous amount of effort to be put forth to just try things to see what works. And the other thing that's absolutely critical in this is to have patients and people who are willing to try to do things to help as well. It's a two-way street, right? We've got to have people who are willing to try the types of remedies and things out there to see what kind of... So I've often, and I've seen this in the autism world, I'm a huge believer that as a practitioner, you know, I can't get very far if I don't have patients who are willing to explore and try different things along with me because that ultimately we
2: lo- we learn together in this approach very much well, let me talk about the sick buildings for a minute because if sure. you watch one of these things in action is really it's amazing especially if you know where the stachybotrys is because the people who are closest to the colony got the sickest there were people that were just another room away or even on the other side of the same room who escaped illness whereas the people in direct proximity to the stachybotrys were made permanently ill. So I saw this as kind of like a threshold event where people got up to a certain level, a certain dose where it finally breached their immune defenses, probably broke down the tight junction proteins that you know protect us from these sort of things, gets into the blood, gets into the brain, breaks down the blood-brain barrier, and programs the microglia. And once you've got those Memory T cells all programmed for a hyper response, then any low level exposure to this kicks you into high gear again, which sort of explains to me why some people can be programmed for this so intensely, while other people not at all. I think there's some really interesting technology coming out where they can measure brain inflammation with an MRI, various portions of the brain, they can detect the temperature. So, with that kind of technology, We could take people, get them feeling as good as they're going to get, maybe out in the desert or some pristine location. And in the course of them going into a sick building again, when they start to exhibit symptoms, do one of these MRIs and just see how badly their brain is being inflamed by it.
1: Right. Yeah. Yeah. That's a, it's a, it's a excellent point. I mean, I've seen that too, just uh, re-exposure. It's almost instantaneous. You know, so there's definitely there's definitely memory cells that are sort of lying in wait, you know, but I think it's probably even more just cellular reactivity is so primed that it it doesn't take much of an insult to just trigger you know trigger cellular reactions too. How much of this do you think is a mast cell degranulation? I think there's a component to that. I think it's more complicated than that. Clearly, you see that with people with you know allergic sensitivities, and I realize you don't always have to have a you know, an allergy to trigger some of the histamine aspects. I think for some cases, it does get into problems in the methylation system. Things are happening at a genetic level where now you're creating dysregulation and methylation and that can affect, you know, histamine regulation too. So I think I I, I see it as a, what are those things called? Like the Venn diagram, you know, the Venn diagram where you like, you have, you have you know here's the circle, and here's the unique things of that circle, but then there's an overlap with something else, an overlap with something else. I look at mass cell as sort of a a component of this, but not necessarily something that just
2: exists in isolation. Well lacking the ability to test these things many years ago, we were relied to or we were forced to rely on our observations, just watching people going in and out of sick buildings. And see what happened to them, and sure enough, people in certain buildings became hypersensitive. Other people would come into contact with lots of mold, but they wouldn't become hypersensitive. Right. In fact, in the first uh, peer-reviewed uh, literature on uh, black mold and mycotoxins, Dr. William Croft in 1986, he talks about after rem- remediation, everybody got better, and and that was Stachybotrys. So, what's the difference? Why is it in some cases people become hypersensitive and other times not? Well,
1: I think part of that comes down to differences in immune function. And I think also, in fact, I was just, I just did a conference this past weekend with Great Plains where I was talking about mitochondrial dysregulation and neurochemical imbalances. But there was another lecturer by the name of Bob Miller. And Bob is a specialist in looking at genomic profiles with a deep understanding of biochemical relationships. And one of the the points that he made, which was very accurate, was that now more today more than ever, if I look back just, I'm going to take the autism, the, the community as an example. So 15 years ago, we could use methyl B12 as a as a supplement therapy, do it through a subcutaneous injection, and By and large, for most kids, it would cause a profound improvement in eye contact and language development, environmental awareness. And many times the positive results stuck, right? And very rarely would you see negative reactions, which would be like hyperactivity or rare case aggression. Fast forward now, there's something different. Okay. And you know, it's not like everybody, but there seems to be more kids that just either aren't responding. To the methyl B12, like they used to, or are having more profound adverse reactions to it. Nothing extreme, but just more behavioral problems. It's like, well, what is the difference, you know, now versus 10, 15 years ago? Now, and I think we could explain that there's likely just additional environmental factors which are sort of being infused into our world, infused into our areas, um, and I think it has a compounding influence. So. <clears throat> The mold, I know, is, has likely always been a problem, but maybe there's some other kind of environmental change that's happening. I, I don't know entirely, but I look at those kind of situations, too, where I have somebody that is exposed. To, I mean, you can see it in certain families, right? Why is a, a family of four, two of the four people are totally fine being in the moldy environment and two are totally compromised? They're both pretty much eating the same food, same environment, same exposures. Well, you know, there's something happening in the biochemistry at a cellular level, at a biochemical level, at an immune system level, where those two individuals are just having all kinds of issues and somebody else is able to handle the exposures. So that's sort of the unique aspect of what we do is trying to understand sort of the unique qualities of, you know. The underlying biochemistry and physiology and why some people are more susceptible to anything else. So I think eventually, right, if you keep throwing out toxins like like uh, these trichotheses from stockypotris, pretty much anybody is going to become sick eventually. It's just going to Absolutely. overwhelm their system. There's going to be anybody that's going to be able to hold off that onslaught forever. Anybody in their dog or cat, right? And the pets, exactly.
2: Yeah. yeah. I mean, they're trying so, to blame human leukocyte antigens. And our pets don't even have human leukocyte right. antigens, yeah. But and it, but it's a, a very curious thing. And one thing that I really like to point out a lot is that 25 years ago, it was like nobody knew about mold. You could suggest it to the top researchers in the world, and they would not connect it with chronic fatigue syndrome. And now, we spend a lot of time in the mold groups, and doctors are dropping like flies. We pick up a new few mold cases of doctors who got sick and had to run for their lives themselves. So it's very alarming that this would go from so completely unknown to everywhere in only 25 years.
1: Yeah. I think it's a, I think it's in part, I think it's in part an antigen overload situation. We could, we could speculate or theorize about some other aspects. I mean, I mean, I can look at just the, well, It's not just a problem happening here in the world. It's happening around here in the U.S. It's happening in other countries too. I think certainly the overuse of vaccinations, you know, are certainly a compounding factor. Not that it's exposing people to mold, but perhaps it's just creating, you know, immune system dysregulation at some level that might make people more susceptible from an inflammatory standpoint. I I, I don't know. It's there's a lot of there's a lot that's known, and there's a lot of unanswered questions. But one thing is clear is now that people's eyes are open to it, you can start to see it. And it, they, it's very difficult to be in denial about it anymore, although there are those that will continue to do so. Yeah,
2: I make routine trips to Stanford to tell them about this, and they are not having any part of it.
1: Yeah. Well, that doesn't surprise me. And I'm sure there's other things they're probably not having you know, any part of either with some of the things that we we know are happening with people with chronic illness. So,
0: that's really interesting and you know we are exposing mold and we do expose a lot. You know, we we know a lot of people and uh, you know I'm not going to say which vaccine maker it's a covid vaccine but they're having issue contamination issues with their vials. And so I almost suspect that is happening across the board even in food factories because it just seems like there's so many and this is speculative of course. Sure so many of these, you know, food places being burned down, there's plane crashes into these, you know, food production facilities, and everyone's calling conspiracy, like, oh, they're trying to, you know, well, I don't know, starve us, who knows. But I almost feel like if a lot, if there's so much microbial issue, mold growth issue in buildings, maybe it's just a way for them to divert away from these issues that they're having in their factories. And it's, much easier to collect from your insurer for a burnt-down factory than it is for microbial issues, right?
1: Well, that's an interesting take.
0: I mean, that's just kind yeah. of what I've been seeing and what I'm what I'm thinking. Because if you know, if these major vaccine manufacturers can't even control contamination in their vials, what do you think is happening in in the food world, right? And so that's just sort of my thought. Yeah, it
1: may. You know, that that's actually an interesting thought. You know, because. For better or for worse and through all the problems that our regulatory agencies have, nothing's perfect I I think they generally tend to do a pretty good job at trying to control mold and mycotoxins because as a food exporter no other country wants contaminated food coming in we're not talking about chemicals right so maybe there's a problem happening at that level maybe the whole system is becoming so congested corrupt and dysfunctional that Things are just falling apart all around us.
0: Yeah, I mean, we saw that in the beginning of COVID with the FDA stating that they're reducing their inspections for a lot of factories, right. and so maybe that's just you know this downstream issue that's happening where you know yeah things are falling through the cracks and look what's happening <laughs> you know, contamination. Well, I,
1: I think you know, but I think you know it goes back to two is that the if you look at veterinary medicine you know, they've been more forward thinking than, you know, than a lot of areas in human medicine. I mean, so the the idea of mold and mycotoxins has been a big deal in agriculture for years, because they know it's it's a billion dollar crop industry or a billion dollar industry of livestock. So the last thing you want is your, you know, your livestock to get contaminated. In fact, there's companies out there that have chemists that are specifically designing, you know, chemicals to sort of attack these mycotoxins and get rid of them. It just hasn't really crossed over into human medicine yet. I can imagine someday, you know, the conventional medical world will take credit for having discovered the toxicity of mycotoxins. But I think it's just a slow moving machine that it's so bound up in bureaucracy and medical bureaucracy that they're just so far behind. That are it's they just, really
0: though, you know, are they really? Are they far behind by choice? You know what I mean. Is yeah. it because this has been going on for a while? Well,
1: I think it may be. I think there's certain elements that are by choice, and some others yeah. may be designed. You know,
0: maybe to because desert. I mean,
1: anymore, if you look around, right? Are we? Are we really? We're certainly not dealing with an honest system. You know, <laughs> we could we could get into the whole you know things that we've all experienced in the past three years and realize, okay, there's a there's a larger. Movement and agenda at foot, you know, through the censorship and and, and the squelching of of known effective interventions. So that that would certainly be a you know a topic for another conversation at some point. Yeah,
2: absolutely, that was actually uh, a major portion of my goal in volunteering to help start this new chronic fatigue syndrome was to cut out all the fuss and bother of researchers fighting each other all the suppression and the cutthroat competition they get into and just get some research onto the mold and get it done. Like right now. Yeah. Well, one of
1: the things, and, and, uh, you know, to kind of, I actually have to wrap up here pretty quick because I've got a a lecture at the bottom of the hour, but one of the things I think, and, and I know you as an individual, you know, have experienced this and this, unfortunately, even in today's world, you know, most of us are on our own when it comes to our health. Because there is no government agency and you know regulatory agency that's going to save us from everything, and so people have to take it upon themselves to learn how to take care of themselves, learn how to be well, learn how to have things at home that they can do to deal with themselves, and also become more and more aware of the environmental pollutants that are around us. and that would certainly you know mold and mycotoxins is a big one and I talk to patients a lot when I hear them say, "Oh, it can't be that." And I'm like, "Well, why do you say that? You know, the testing is showing exposure. Well, because i I don't see any mold in my house. I'm like, that doesn't mean anything. it there's It's not just for me, it's not just at the medical level that there is maybe blindness and denial. There's a public awareness. Or people might be aware of mold, but they're just not, they don't get it about how toxic these substances can be. And so the messaging isn't out there, you know? So I think of anything that what we can do in moving forward is just trying to get more information out there about the danger of these things. If you see this or you are experiencing this, this is something that absolutely should be looked into because it could have devastating consequences for yourself and your family.
0: Absolutely. Very well said. Thank you. Yeah, thank yeah. you. And You're you welcome. know, it's <laughs> it's one thing to, to try to, you know, influence the doctors, but a lot of it is trying to influence the patients too, because, and their families, because a lot of them just don't want to believe it.
1: Right. Um, you don't. know,
0: just, just a short story before you, I know you have to go, but you know, I have family members that are, they both have these mysterious cancers that hit all at once while they have a roof leak. And I'm trying to tell them this and they want, they don't want to listen to it. They want to say, oh, it's the hormones that that's why I got the cancer. Oh, it's the and I'm not saying it's directly the mold, but there is a factor and we do have to recognize that. So Just like you said, continuing education and getting outreach to people as much as we can to let them know, hey, these are the dangers and everyone is in danger of this. There there isn't that 20% of the population that are the only ones that can become sick and susceptible to this. It's everyone. And so we we really need to make that a known factor. Hello, everyone. I'd love to introduce you to the Exposing Mold team. We are passionate and committed to exposing the truth about toxic mold. Many mold-injured people are often misdiagnosed with autoimmune conditions, nerve damage, mental illnesses, and other chronic health conditions due to the lack of knowledge about water damage and toxic mold growing in their homes. The crippling effects of toxic mold has destroyed many lives. It has become part of our life's mission to expose this truth and educate society on the extreme effects that mold can have on the body. Our work is vital because of the lack of experience and acknowledgement from mainstream medical practitioners. Keely, Eric, and Alicia have firsthand experience dealing with mold exposure, and we make sure to address all the signs and symptoms during every environmental screening that is performed. Our team's dedication to learning and understanding the effects of toxic mold and educating and bringing awareness to patients keep us motivated. We know firsthand just how devastating the untreated consequences can be on your health, the health of your families, relationships, and life outcomes. If you or someone you know might be affected by toxic mold exposure, rest assured that you and our team will work together to find a solution. Currently, Keely is offering environmental screenings, education on mold avoidance, Chinese medicine recommendations, and will screen you for past or current exposures. She will help you embrace mold avoidance as a lifestyle and teach you how your sensitivities and reactions act as a compass to recovery. If you need clarity on mold testing reports or remediation plans, she's your gal. Alicia specializes in developing mold avoidance strategies that meet your unique needs. She's experienced in extreme avoidance and can provide coaching for hotel, RV and trailer and campground living. Eric Johnson specializes in provider training offering mold injury, hypersensitization and patient relapse prevention education. Book your consult with one of our team members by visiting exposingmold.com consultations. Or you can also join our support group by visiting patreon.com slash exposing mold. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com slash exposing mold. Thank you, everyone. So Dr. Wohler, we had such a great time with you today. Great conversation. You're awesome. Can you, where can we get in touch with you? Yes. So where a, can a, people a couple find of you?
1: places. My, if, if people are interested in, in consulting with me directly, mysunrisecenter.com. That's M-Y, mysunrisecenter.com. It's the website for my main practice. If there is practitioners that are listening who are interested in courses that we have, we have something called Integrative Medicine Academy, where we have mastery courses in hormones and toxicity and mold and organic acid testing. And then finally, for, for other people who are maybe just interested in in accessing certain lab tests, there's actually a website called labtestsplus.com. And that website actually offers certain lab tests, urine tests, hair, saliva, and you can actually test mycotoxins. So for Great Plains Laboratory, actually, um, one of the tests that's offered through that website is their mycotox profile, just to be able to say, do I have existence of mycotoxins? And All of those labs actually come with a written interpretation on the relevant findings of those labs. So for just general information about lab testing regarding this, go to labtestplus.com.
0: Great. A little birdie on the street told me that you have a podcast coming up too. Is that true? I do.
1: That is in the works. In fact, that's one of the things I'm trying to get started here. I've been extremely busy, not enough time in the day, but that's one of the things I'm looking to start here in the next few weeks. Fantastic. And, um, yeah, I'm, I've got a lot of things to share. And just like you too, just being able to get more information out there, not only to just doctors and scientists, but to the general public, because we're all in this together, right?
0: Absolutely. This is all
1: how we learn and, and just share information and, and just try to get it out there. It's fantastic, it's absolutely necessary.
0: Absolutely. If you plan on doing a CFS bit, please consider Eric as a host. (laughs) (laughs)
1: Oh, I absolutely will. I most definitely will.
0: (laughs) He knows the history and he's been advocating for 30 years now on, you know, trying to get researchers to say, hey, mold's doing something weird and it's making people sick. And this is what happened in Lake Tahoe with my group. So. Thanks again. We appreciate your time and listeners, please check out Dr. Roller. He is a wealth of knowledge, man. This guy has so much information on his, on his site, on autism, to autoimmune issues, to everything you can think of. So please check that out. Thanks again for listening. We'll see you guys next time.